beloved saints, the grass withers, the flower fades, but this, the word of our God, remains forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And so ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Father, we know that your word is good. It is perfect. It gives life. It enlightens the eyes and it renews the soul. But we also know that it can be abused and that it has been abused. We know that sinful man has used your glorious word for his own sinful ends. We want to hear your word as you want it to be heard. But this also scares us because your word is about Jesus and his need to suffer before he entered into his glory. We want Jesus without the cross. We want his kingdom without tribulation. We want comfort, but not character. Father, please crucify these desires. May our only desire be for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And may every word that comes from this pulpit reflect your word as you intended it. Father, guard my lips and open our hearts and ears that we might see Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've mentioned it before, and uh, you can be confident that I will again because it's something that's important. It's our need to be on guard against the temptation to simply know about God, but not actually know God. And there's a big difference. I think we understand that a biographer can research someone, could actually become the the world's foremost expert on someone. 
But until that biographer meets that person and gets to know that person as an individual, all he knows is about him and not actually knows him. Knowing about someone does not mean knowing that person. And this happens with God. Far more often than we would ever want to admit. Uh, There are people who are quite knowledgeable about God. They know their theology. They know their doctrine down cold. But over time it becomes clear that they don't actually know God. They've never met Jesus. Isaiah put it this way long ago. These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from me. And sadly, this is sometimes, maybe often, true for those who are in ministry, for pastors who claim to lead God's people. For whatever reason... There are some in ministry who who are well-read, very knowledgeable, well-educated. And yet they, they never give any indication of actually having ever met Jesus. And here's the thing. That shows up in the way they preach because we preach what we know. We preach what we love. Those who know and love Jesus, guess what they preach? They preach Jesus. And those who don't, well, they end up preaching something else. And such was the case in the days of Israel when Malachi was ministering. And as we continue our way through this short book, uh, we want to remember that this, this book of Malachi really addresses two questions. Does God love Israel? And does Israel love God? Uh, a couple weeks ago, our first week looking at this book, we, we looked at that first question and God's defense that, yes, he really loves Israel. And this was shown in two things. One, he chose Israel. He chose Jacob over Esau. And that, that love continued to be shown as he defended Israel from her enemies, especially the descendants of Esau. Then last week we started to look at that second question. Does Israel actually love God? Do those who have been called by his name and set apart from the nations, do they love God? And God begins not with the people, but with the leaders, the the priests in Israel. And he starts by addressing that we saw last week the issue of worship and how failing to guard the doors of worship that the priests were defiling God's house and God's name. And then this week, we're we're turning our our attention to the second job of the priest. If the first job of the priest was to guard worship, the second job was to instruct God's people to preach the word. And they're not doing their jobs, and God is not happy. And as we work our way through this passage, I want to start uh, by trying to lay out just exactly what uh, the sins of the priest were that are being addressed and what God's judgment looks like because of that. And then I'd like to look at Malachi's description of the ideal priest, uh, who he calls Levi, and we'll talk about why. But his idea of the ideal priest is is one who embodies God's word. 
which is something we have in Jesus Christ. And then finally, I want to see how pastors today must be shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ if we are ever going to preach the way God wants us to. So that's really what we want to look at. What are the sins of the priest and what's God's judgment? What's the ideal priest and how does he embody God's word and how do we see that in Jesus Christ? And then finally, what does that mean for those who preach God's word today and how they must be shaped by the cross? And when we look at all of that, the point will simply be this. When preachers truly know God, not just about God, but when they know God, They preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we're going to see as we uh, open up this beautiful, uh, albeit humbling text before us uh, this morning. So what were the sins of the priests? Well, we see it clearly in verses 7 and 8. The priests had been tasked with guarding the truth of God's word. Uh, They were supposed to be his messengers, and messengers' job is not to make things up, but to faithfully proclaim someone else's message without changing it. But it says that they had turned aside. They had shirked their responsibility. They had not done what was required. They weren't preaching what they were supposed to be. They were leading God's people into the wisdom of men then. If they're not, if they're not preaching God's word, it's not God's wisdom that they're giving. It's, it's man's wisdom rather than the wisdom of God. And yet, look at verse 5. They were, they were brazen in their sin. God says there's no fear in their eyes. No fear of God, no consideration that he might one day hold them accountable for claiming to preach in his name, but actually bringing their own message instead. The greatest indictment is in verse 9. They showed partiality. And that doesn't mean that they were siding with one party over another party in, in some um, argument. What it means is that they gave preferential treatment to certain kinds of people, namely those who might be of benefit to the priests. They catered to the wealthy, the influential, what we might call the movers and the shakers. They didn't care about, spend time with, or advocate for the downtrodden, the poor, the weak, the invisible, the afflicted. In other words, they saw their positions of leadership as opportunities to improve their own circumstances. Whether that meant wealth or simply stature or influence or maybe just comfort. They were trading favors with those who might help them in order that they might make their lives easier. So all that training they had received, all that knowledge that filled their heads, uh, they saw that simply as something that might be used to serve their ambition and their greed for power and prestige and comfort. Which means that their, their ministry 
wasn't driven by love. It was driven by envy and greed and, and self-love. And, and, and it's sad, but it's not surprising. It, it was true in that day, and it's still an ever-present temptation for those in leadership in the church today. I think we, we know what that looks like and how that shows up, but let me just give a few examples, by no means exhaustive. Um, preachers are, are tempted to promise health and, and prosperity to those who honor God. And, well, on one hand, that people might see that as an opportunity to get ahead. It, it also does this. It tells the wealthy that they must be doing something right and they just need to keep doing whatever it is they're doing. And what's the message to those who aren't wealthy or who are dealing with chronic illness? The message is, what's wrong with you? You must have disappointed God. And you need to get your act together. A pastor might promise victory over sin if, if you just do what they say, if you just read their book or, or follow their program. But what happens when you discover that it's not actually that easy and the same sin continues to plague you day after day, week after week, year after year, eventually you become convinced that maybe you just don't really belong to the Lord. Maybe you're not his child and you should just give up and go away because clearly you're not part of the group that God loves. Some pastors are tempted to tell people that if they just do the right things, Christians will, will rise up and they will take the seat of power in society. No longer will they be ridiculed, suffering as second-class citizens, that, that if they can just get their acts together, oppression, pain, and suffering will be no more. And they will have the seats of power in society, in government. And sometimes the temptation that pastors face is simply to give congregations a sense of objectivity that God does not promise. If you just do your job... With a Christian work ethic, you'll never be passed up for a promotion. If you just do what God requires of a husband or a wife, you'll never be hurt, betrayed, or let down. If you just follow God's commands as a parent, your children will be wonderful Christians. And behind every one of these false messages is the idea that if you just do the right thing, if you just follow the right formula, that you can guarantee the outcome. And that God will owe you what you want. And, and so God's word becomes nothing more than a tool to get what you want, whether that's at church or at home or in society. And in such a view, there's no surrender Because God has become nothing more than a genie to give you your wishes and his word has become nothing more than the lamp you rub. And there's no fear 
There's no humility. And there's no love of God. But there's always a ring of authenticity because such preachers will always quote the Bible. They might not know God, but they know His Word and they know how to use it to their ends. And so while it's in their head, as as verse 3 says, they, they have not laid it up in their hearts. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. They might not know God, but, but they do know people. And they know that, that preaching surrender <laughs> is never going to get them ahead. Never get them a book deal. Because people don't want to hear, you could do everything right and still lose your family, your job, and your health. Welcome aboard. And so they'll tell people what they want to hear. They'll tickle itching ears. And in exchange for doing so, they're rewarded with power, influence, and bigger paychecks. It's as true today as it was in the day of Malachi. And so God's words of judgment in verses 1 through 4 are as fitting today as they were 2,500 years ago. Really, uh, the, the, the judgment we see in verses 1 through 4 is attached to both the passage we read to, we've read today and last week. It's really one thing. It's, it's God's judgment on the priests. Last week it was for their failure to, to guard worship. This week it's for their failure to guard preaching. And the judgment in the middle is pointing both directions. For those who fail to guard the purity of worship and those who who fail to serve God's people by preaching the truth, God says he will replace their blessings with curses. He's talking about their place of honor as leaders. Their public honor will be a public shame. And then God says in verse 3, he will rub dung, the dung of sacrifices, on the faces of his priests. That might take a little bit of explaining. There were three parts to every sacrifice. There was the the best and choicest portion which was offered up to God. That was his and his alone. There was the portion that would go to the priests for their food. And uh, this is what Eli's sons got in trouble with is they were inverting those two (laughs) and keeping the best for themselves. And then there were uh, the other things that come out of the sacrifice that were fitting neither for God nor for the priest, the entrails and the excrement. And these were to be taken outside the city and burned because they were worthless, they were foul, they were unclean, and they had no place in God's temple. God is saying that the labors of the priests have become like the entrails and the excrement of the animals they offer up. 
filled with ambition and self-service. Uh, seeing ministry as, as an opportunity to be served and not to serve. Knowing about God, but not actually knowing God. They have become like the entrails. They have become like the feces. And they have no place in God's house. And so they must be hauled off with the entrails and the excrement. Because they do not know God, verse 4. They need to be hauled off and taken away. I think this is what Paul, the apostle, was reflecting on in Philippians 3. When he confesses that, that for years he had followed God's laws carefully. But he only saw them as uh, means to exalt himself and to judge others. And then he goes on. Do you remember what Paul says? After he says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees and uh, keeper of the law and all this. He says, but whatever I thought benefited me, I now consider dung compared to knowing Jesus Christ. I think he's saying, I was like those priests in the days of Malachi. I honored God with my lips, but, but my heart was far from him. And so God rubbed dung on my face. And then Paul would say, and I'm glad he did. Because now I don't just know about God. I know him. And there was God a saying that the the dung that comes out of the sacrifices... reflects who the priests have become. They weren't just supposed to proclaim uh, words with their mouths. They were meant to embody the word they proclaimed. And to understand this, we need to understand who Levi is in verses 4 through 7. If you were in Sunday school, this is going to be somewhat of a review. (laughs) God starts talking about Levi in verses 5 through 6 and everything Levi did right and how he kept the covenant and and how he taught the people. But Levi was one of Jacob's 12 sons. And Levi died four centuries, 400 years before the covenant that he was supposedly kept was even instituted. Beyond that, none of Levi's descendants, the Levitical priests, ever served God's people the way Malachi describes here. So what's going on? Well, a quick history lesson will help. Levi was the third son born to Leah, uh, Jacob's first wife. Remember, Jacob loved Rachel. He worked for her for seven years. Uh, Her father tricked him, and he married Leah. He worked seven more years. He got Rachel. Then there was this whole squabble, and both of them gave him his handmaid. So Jacob ends with like four wives. Bad idea. Um, Leah's the first. And Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And and Jacob gave Rachel 
preferential treatment and it broke Leah's heart. And when she bore him his third son, she said, Now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. She hoped that Levi would be the one to mend this broken relationship between her and her husband. And so she names him Levi, which means to join together. Maybe, maybe this son will join my husband and me. Maybe he will mend our strained relationship. Years later, when God destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, but he spared Israel's firstborn, he said that that Israel owed their firstborn sons to him because he spared them in the Passover, but instead he would take the tribe of Levi in place of the firstborn sons. They were then his portion, Israel's sacrifice to their God, the whole tribe of Levi. They were his portion. And God would use them as servants in his house to guard worship and to proclaim his word. And it was through these Levites, these priests, that he established his covenant at Mount Sinai. Because in the covenant that he established there showed them the tools to join together a sinful people and a holy God. Through sacrifices and and service and and teaching, the Levites would would turn people from their sin and, and lead them to surrender to their God that they might find peace with him. And they might walk in uprightness before him. That's what God's covenant was all about. Life and peace with God through truth and sacrifice. And as servants of that covenant, they were to be completely shaped by it. They were um, not just supposed to offer sacrifices, they were to uh, embody sacrifices. They themselves had been offered up by Israel to God. They were, after all, Israel's portion uh, given to God as his portion. And so as priests, they were offered up to the Lord in order to do the work of joining together a holy God and a sinful people. That's what their name means. And when Malachi talks about Levi, in verses 5 and 6, he's personifying the entire priesthood as what it was intended to be. They were to be walking, talking, living sacrifices. Guiding God's people to surrender to the God of peace who alone could bring forgiveness and healing. And so they were to embody humility and reverence. Verse 5. Their their lips were supposed to guard truth. Verse 5. They were to obey God because they loved God, verse 6. And they were to turn people from their sins, verse 6 as well. They were to show no partiality, but but delight in serving the the low, the hurting, the downtrodden, 
not seeking power and esteem, but, but laying down their lives for the people. Their, li- their lives were supposed to embody the very word they proclaimed, peace with God through truth and sacrifice. But instead, everything they did was to serve themselves and not the people. Not one Levitical priest ever lived up to the name Levi, the way Malachi describes it here. The only one who ever did would not be born for another 400 years. When Jesus came, he came as the perfect priest. Not Israel's firstborn, but but God's firstborn. And he did nothing from selfish ambition. He, He never told the people what they wanted to hear. He always told them what they needed to hear. As Peter would say, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't seek power, and he rejected every attempt to bribe him to shut him up. He endured shame and ridicule because he wasn't there to serve himself, but us. And he spent his time with the lowly, the hurting, the outcast, the leprous. He didn't come to build a glorious empire of comfort and and ease and power. He came to seek and to save the lost and turn them from iniquity. He didn't just preach the word of reconciliation through sacrifice, he embodied it. And because he knew the Father and the Father knew him, because he understood what the word of God was actually about, and because he loved the God who proclaimed it, and whom it proclaimed, there was no other option for him but to end being sacrificed for the people he loved on the cross at Calvary so that he might join a sinful people to a holy God. That's who Jesus is. That's why we love him. It's why we need him. It's why we should long to be like him especially those who would dare to stand up in his house and preach his word. When the Apostle Paul, who considered his whole previous ministry dung, talked about his current ministry, do you remember what he said? He says, I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul is saying more than that he preaches about what happened to Jesus on the cross. He's saying his entire ministry is shaped by that cross. 
He immediately uh, follows that with these words. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What Paul's saying is, is that the Jesus life of sacrifice. That the cross of Jesus Christ oozed out of every nook and cranny of Paul's ministry. Yes, the words he preached, but everything else as well. Weakness, fear, awe, not ambition, but service and surrender. Paul would characterize his entire life as an offering being poured out to God in order to turn people from iniquity to their God. As one called to preach the message about reconciliation through sacrifice, he understood that he also had to live a life that embodied that message. That's the difference between a preacher who knows about God and one who knows God. And Paul's point in all of this was to tell us what those who preach in God's house are called to. Preaching is is incredibly important to God. Because preaching isn't people talking about God. At least it's not supposed to be. If a preacher guards his lips and says what's truly in the Bible, then it's not the preacher's words, it's God's words. And that means it's not the preacher speaking really, but God himself. And when God speaks, things happen. was created by God speaking. At a word from Jesus, Lazarus rose from the dead and came out. At his word, uh, sinners are called to salvation and are given life and are transformed. God's word is powerful. But for it to be powerful, it must be God's word and not man's. A church will never be healthy. A church will never be vibrant where God's word is not clearly preached. A church that calls people to glory and not the cross will never see the power of the gospel at work in it. When you know God, you want to be like Jesus and take up your cross and follow him. And when preachers truly know God, they preach Christ and Him crucified. Preachers who just know about God will only preach whatever raises their esteem, their prestige, and their standing. 
the health of a church begins in the pulpit. If a pastor doesn't know the cross, if a pastor doesn't love the cross, if a pastor hasn't been shaped by the cross, he can only offer you entrails and dung. And that has no place in God's pulpit. But when a pastor counts his own success and ambition as dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ... when he understands that it's only those who lose their lives who truly find them. When he ministers in weakness and fear, knowing that God can't be controlled or manipulated, and that he doesn't owe us a thing for our obedience, and that there is no safe place in the universe except an absolute, total, and utter surrender to the God who took on flesh and blood to sacrifice himself for those he loves. When a pastor understands that, when he knows this God, he will preach Christ and he will preach Christ crucified. My hope, my prayer is that you will never hear anything but that from this pulpit. There are a lot of reasons why we have the Lord's Supper every week. One of the advantages to having the Lord's Supper every week is that when you know you will end here with the cross of Jesus Christ made visible, you had better preach Christ crucified. If a pastor ever gets to the end of a sermon and it's not clear how the sermon leads us to this table, well, then he's just preached dung and it has no place in God's church. But if he has preached the cross of Jesus, if he's managed to get out of the way of God's word, if the sermon embodies and proclaims the perfect priest who brings peace through sacrifice, then there will be no more obvious place to end than where the Lord takes his portion and he shares it with his people and he calls them to see their lives in the bread and wine so that they might embody the cross as well. And so, beloved, you who have been reconciled and joined together to a holy God through the sacrifice of the better priest, Jesus Christ, let us come, let us receive, and let us give praise to our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask Pastor Isaac and the elders to come forward this morning. Our great and awesome God. You who keep covenant and steadfast love, you who have never once let a false word cross your lips. We long to know not just about you, but to really and truly know you. We've turned aside, we've stumbled, we have sought after those who would tickle our ears. We have believed what we want to be true instead of what you tell us is true. And so we ask you to forgive us and teach us to long for Jesus alone. And we ask, Father, that you would guard this pulpit. 
that those who enter it would do so in weakness and fear and trembling. Not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of your spirit and power. So that our faith would not rest in the wisdom of men. But in you and your power, may this pulpit know nothing but Jesus Christ. In him crucified we pray. Amen.